I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about a couple of speeches the justices gave, some new opinions, and we'll interview Adam Feldman of Empirical SCOTUS. So, Tiffany, did you see the news about the Florida Supreme Court? I did not. What are they doing? Exciting, exciting times. They're going to broadcast their arguments on Facebook Live starting next month. Yeah. That's hilarious. (laughs) So, shout out to our friends at Fix the Court. I'm sure they are very pleased since they've been trying to get cameras in courtrooms across America. Uh, This is a a new bold step into Facebook for the Florida Supreme Court. I can just, I'm imagining now just like everyone at Fix the Court just going around the country and holding their iPhone up to record, you know, (laughs) these courtroom sessions for Facebook Live. It'll be interesting to see what sort of uh, comments and questions that they get on Facebook during the during the arguments. Yeah, are they going to take questions? Question from the audience here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in a news story about the the Facebook live streaming, um, I also read that the Florida Supreme Court has its own podcast. Apparently, it's called Beyond the Bench. Hmm. But I took a look in iTunes and I couldn't find it. But I did find a, a, a podcast of the same name about the North Carolina court system. So we'll do a little digging and. And see if Beyond the Bench is uh, worth is worth, to. Is worth a SCOTUS 101 recommendation. So this week, Justice Gorsuch spoke to students in Atlantic City about civics and civility. So this seems to be a, a recurring theme in his speeches. He sat down with his good friend Bill Hughes Jr., who he mentioned is a lifelong Democrat. Um, this was part of their uh, conversation and uh, commenting how it's uh, possible to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, which is advice a lot of people should um, should take to heart. Especially people on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. They both said that having different views has made their friendship stronger over the years and helped them to realize that there's a lot more to life than politics and law. I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> yes. And, and he also commented on um, civility at the court. He said, I've got pretty, pretty civil colleagues. Disagreement is part of the job description, but it doesn't stop us from having dinner together afterwards. So I thought that was... That was very nice. Yeah. So Justice Ginsburg attended the Sundance Film Festival for the premiere of CNN's documentary about her life. I think We're it's just have to watch that. Yes. I'm very excited. Yes. Let's have a, a screening party. I think it's just called RBG. Uh, and she was interviewed by NPR's Nina Totenberg. One of the topics they discussed, Saturday Night Live's impression of her with the signature line, you just got Ginsburg. <laughs> uh, Ginsburg <laughs> said, that, yeah, it is really good. Ginsburg said that she has seen uh, a, an episode uh, with with the you got Ginsburg character. And uh, she said she, she likes the actress, Kate McKinnon, and that sometimes she wants to say that to her colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) I think she should. It's hilarious. Yeah. No, I think when she's reading a a dissent from the bench and she's wearing her (laughs) dissent jabot, she should throw in a, you got Gins burned. (laughs) You know, um, some judges are make interesting, you know, the part of the opinions when it says like so-and-so respectfully dissenting. Mm. Some judges, uh, Judge Kaczynski used to get very creative in how he would phrase those um, things so I think she should she should do that maybe like <laughs> Ginsburg J Ginsburning everyone else <laughs> that's pretty great well turning to the actual work of the Supreme Court even though the rest of the government was shut down on Monday the court remained open uh, Andrew Ham of Scotus blog has a post explaining how the court is able to stay open even during government shutdowns is it just because they're hardcore they are hardcore they don't take snow days they don't shut down during government shutdowns they've got work to do and they're ready 
ready to do it. Uh, so anyway, we'll we'll tweet that that article by Andrew Ham out on the SCOTUS 101 Twitter account. But anyway, after uh, at long last, the court finally issued some opinions, breaking its silence. So first up was National Association of Manufacturers versus Department of Defense, and this deals with the uh, the 2015 Obama administration Waters of the U.S. rule. So back in 2015, the administration issued this rule, which extends federal control over just about every puddle in America. Um, (laughs) Property owners, businesses, and several states went to court uh, to sue, but there was a dispute over what court has jurisdiction over challenges to the WOTUS rule. So the government argued that the courts of appeals have exclusive jurisdiction, um, but the property owners and others uh, wanted to start out in district court, uh, like most lawsuits. Do. So, in a unanimous opinion by Justice Sotomayor, the court sided with the challengers, finding that the Clean Water Act does not give appeals courts exclusive jurisdiction to hear these challenges. But this may all be for naught because the EPA has proposed a rule to rescind the WOTUS regulation. Um, next up is DC versus Wesby. So, we've talked about this case before. Um, what we'd like to call the Peaches case. And I think Peaches died, didn't she? Yeah, she did. I read an article. I think she she passed away before the case. R.I.P. Peaches. Yes. Um, so this is the case where the neighbors called the a bunch of neighbors called the cops saying there's a party going on at this vacant house. And the cops show up and there's strippers and people smoking marijuana. They contact the homeowner and he says that no one's supposed to be there. Um, and the partiers that are there claim a woman named Peaches invited them, although she was not there. So this week the court said the police had probable cause to arrest those partiers. And I can't believe that the D.C. Circuit had said otherwise. (laughs) All of the justices voted to overturn that decision, though Sotomayor and Ginsburg concurred only in the judgment. Justice Thomas had the opinion for the court, and he said there's probable cause for a number of reasons. Multiple neighbors had said the house was vacant. The house looked vacant because it looked unoccupied, and there was almost a complete absence of furniture. Hey, there was a mattress on the floor, okay? (laughs) Which is super sketchy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, like, it was dirty, and some of the people said it was a bachelor party, and my favorite line of the opinion was when Justice Thomas pointed out that there's usually a bachelor at a bachelor party. (laughs) If you don't, like, know, um, see him or can't identify him, it seems a little weird. Uh, The court also said that the officers were entitled to qualified immunity because there was no precedent that remotely suggested the officer's actions were unlawful. And then in the last case this week in Artists versus D.C., Justice Ginsburg uh, wrote an opinion for five members of the court, so the Chief Justice, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, which uh, reversed the D.C. Court of Appeals and held that the filing of a D.C. employment discrimination claim in D.C. Superior Court was not time-barred. So this is a really boring case. Um, so we're not yeah, gonna, I think I just fell asleep. Uh, yeah, we're not going to go into it anymore. It. But it got a lot of attention because it had a dissent by Justice Gorsuch, which Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito joined. But the interesting part isn't even the substance of the dissent. It's the first two sentences, which I'll read. So he wrote, Chesterton reminds us not to clear away offense just because we cannot see its point. Even if offense doesn't seem to have a reason, sometimes all that means is we need to look more carefully for the reason it was built in the first place. And with those two sentences, liberal law professors and pundits lost their minds. <laughs> um, now I'll concede that the first sentence would have probably you know, stood better on its own and been more 
effective that way. But the backlash over these two sentences is unbelievable. So Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate wrote an article entitled, Neil Gorsuch is a terrible writer. And he called the opinion a crime against the English language. So this is just an extension of um, Gorsuch derangement syndrome. Yes. We need to coin that. That's great. Yeah. Um, Hashtag Gorsuch derangement (laughs) syndrome. The left is just... They've lost their minds over over Justice Gorsuch. Yeah, they're just still angry that Justice Gorsuch is on the court. And this continued hostility towards him, I think, is pretty undeserved. Um, and it's just it's just getting ridiculous between this and rumors about, you know, him uh, having fights with Justice Kagan, which has now been put to rest. So all these these law professors on Twitter started playing a game and they would like use a phrase or a quote and then use a second sentence to explain that phrase. And then they'd use the hashtag Gorsuch style. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's just getting kind of out of control. It is, and I got to say, keep the hate coming because it just makes us love Justice Gorsuch even more. That's so, true. Nothing but love for, <laughs> for Neil Gorsuch at SCOTUS 101. Very true. So the court also granted two new cases uh, recently. First up is the travel ban case, Trump versus Hawaii. So the government had petitioned for cert in the case, uh, but the court agreed to review an additional question posed by Hawaii in its brief in opposition. And this is whether the executive order violates the Establishment Clause. So we will see if uh, this one actually ends up uh, going to oral argument and an opinion, unlike uh, Travel Ban 2.0 and (laughs) 1.0. It probably will, and I assume they'll hear it probably in the April sitting. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, And then the the other new case is Weyerhaeuser uh, or Weyerhaeuser versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I'm going to go ahead and guess this won't be heard until next term um, because there are a number of cases that that need to be scheduled for March and April. So uh, I would bet this is going to be in the fall of 2018. So this is a challenge to the government's designation of private property as a critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog, which is an endangered species. It's also really ugly. I mean, it just looks like a frog. Yeah, but it's still ugly. So Ariana DeVogue um, tweeted some important information about (laughs) this frog. So she said, when picked up, the frog covers its eyes with its forefeet to protect its face until a predator tastes its bitter skin secretion. Which is really gross. It it sounds gross. Um, So it's worth pointing out that these frogs have not lived in the area that was uh, designated as a critical habitat for at least the last 50 years. And they're actually only found in a pond in Mississippi or something like that. Uh, So anyway, this case comes out of the Fifth Circuit. And Judge Priscilla Owen wrote a great dissent from the the panel decision that was upholding the critical habitat designation. Uh, So we're going to keep an eye on this one. Um, And there was one case uh, that we were hoping the court would take uh, this time around, but it denied it. Our friends at PLF brought the case called Ganson versus City of Marathon, and I think it's worth highlighting. So this couple, the buyers, bought nine acres in Florida, and at the time when they bought this property, zoning rules allowed them to build a home on each acre. But then a few years later, the county deemed their property a bird rookery, And they were only allowed to use the property basically as a primitive camping ground. And as compensation, the government gave them these non-monetary credits or points that they could potentially use to get a permit for further development in in the future. But it wasn't guaranteed that, that they would get the permit. So uh, the question of the court was whether the government unconstitutionally affects a total take 
of property when it denies all economic, economically viable use of the land, but provides the owner with non-monetary credits that have potential economic value. Um, so I mean, saying, is this like bitcoins? Or like, what are yeah, we talking about here? I don't know. I think they're just like they're like fake points, <laughs> monopoly money. Yeah. Um, source said the court didn't take that case. And then last up, the administration has asked the court to review the DACA case. So a district court enjoined the administration from rolling back the deferred action for childhood arrivals policy. And I thought this was an interesting line from the district court's opinion. It said, a new administration is entitled to replace old policies with new policy as long as they comply with the law. Now, listeners may <laughs> recall that uh, the pre- uh, President Obama circumvented Congress when he implemented the DACA program. So I think it's pretty brazen to now refer to it as the law since the policy was actually going against existing law. But we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, And the court granted an expedited briefing schedule in the DACA case. So once the the federal district judge ruled against the administration, they appealed directly to the Supreme Court and and to the Ninth Circuit. But they asked the the Supreme Court to grant cert before the Ninth Circuit decides the case. Uh, So cert before judgment is pretty rare, but it occasionally happens. And since the court is speeding things up, that might actually happen here. Yeah, so they they may take the case uh, and it could happen uh, in in the coming months. So we'll keep an eye on it. Um, We recently spoke with Adam Feldman of Empirical SCOTUS. Adam is the creator of Empirical SCOTUS, a blog that looks at contemporary and historical Supreme Court issues at an empirical level. He has a PhD from USC and a JD from Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me. So tell us about how you came up with the idea for Empirical SCOTUS, and how do you decide what you're going to examine in, in all of your studies? Definitely. Um, so, I, uh, I I studied um, law from kind of a quantitative perspective, and uh, I was doing this uh, at a scholarly level. Uh, but I, I also noticed that there was a, a major hole in uh, kind of everyday reporting that was, uh, you know, that, that where uh, empirical issues weren't really examined, along with uh, kind of uh, looking at at when cases came out and looking at the doctrine, um, it, it seemed like there there was really a, this missing piece. Um, and uh, something that I was interested in was analytics of law and looking at different benchmarks. Um, and and this seemed to be something that uh, that people that were interested in law generally might be interested in. Um, and and it seemed like a fun little uh, niche for me to explore. And and as I uh, got to um, kind of exploring it. It led me down uh, different different rabbit holes uh, that um, that ask really interesting uh, questions in, in, in my eyes and, and allow uh, me to uh, kind of uh, educate myself in, in the process, which has been uh, you know kind of uh, given me multiple uh, avenues uh, for where this is, has been beneficial. Um, so, how does this site benefit the legal community? I know you're really popular on appellate Twitter, um, and do you think these studies will eventually help practitioners pick up on trends that could give them an advantage? So, it's funny because uh, practitioners actually were the the first uh, general group to to really reach out to me um, because of this, and uh, it, it, as something that I didn't really take into account when I was uh, starting the site, because a lot of uh, what I'm looking at are, are analytics that are, are comparative. Uh, attorneys, you know, see their names, and it, it's a uh, it, it's uh, an opportunity for for advertising, um, or uh, it could be you know positive or negative. 
And so there's there's a lot at stake um, when when you're looking at uh, comparative metrics. And and so attorneys were really inter interested in this data from the get-go. Um, people I, I talked to in, in legal practice had uh, already been doing some of this work internally. And so to have uh, an ex external site that uh, the public could access that looked at some of this um, was of, of definite interest to them. Um, and, and in the process, I've had people reach out to me who uh, are more generalist, uh, people in legal scholarship. It's, uh, I, I've, I've had uh, posts from my site um, used as, as uh, pieces on, on different syllabi in, uh, in law school courses. Um, and, and so the fact that this has been kind of disseminated at uh, a level where uh, people of, of, of all different kind of uh, legal interest backgrounds can, uh, can make use of it has been really, uh, really neat for me. So of all the studies that you've done, what do you think is the most interesting one that you've, that you've looked into? Probably, and, and this is uh, something that's come up on uh, on my blog, as well as uh, some pieces that I've, I've had published in, in law journals. Um, and uh, what, what, what the, the um, kind of general area has to do with is looking at how judges come to the language in their opinions, and particularly in the Supreme Court, how attorneys impact this process. Um, and uh, I, I had read a, a number of books a while back looking at uh, opinion construction and, and the role of attorneying, and one of the the uh, one of the debates in in, in, um, in in different books has to do uh, with whether attorneys really make a difference in the Supreme Court or do the justices come to cases with already predefined views? You know, the the the, the case have been litigated already in, in one or more lower courts. So, does attorneying really matter? Uh, and one way to to test this was looking at whether the language in, in briefs had been uh, picked up and was being used or recycled or, or uh, changed in, in innovative ways uh, when they when it, um, placed in, in Supreme Court opinions. And I just found some uh, remarkable, uh, in, in my eyes anyway, uh, remarkable um, examples of, of, of the role that attorney plays and how it's changed over time. Um, and, and so look at this both in, in uh, modern cases and in more historic cases. Uh, and you know, I really think that's what uh, began to, to kind of drive uh, me uh, towards looking at, at some of these uh, uh, empirical questions at, uh, at a deeper level. So getting into the substance of a few more of your studies, um, let's talk about your study uh, recently on amicus briefs. So who's leading the pack in filing amicus briefs, and how, um, how should we gauge, and how can we gauge their effectiveness? So amicus briefs are really interesting because they, uh, they're, they're somewhat of a, uh, or uh, uh, the amicus practice in general is um, somewhat of a practice that, that really took off in the the mid 20th century, and it wasn't something that was always uh, important to to the court in the way that it is now. And now you have so many different uh, groups filing briefs. You have uh, these powerhouses like uh, Chamber of Commerce and the Washington Legal Foundation, who file in many many cases every term. And it seems like their uh, their briefs are, are really uh, scrutinized by justices and justices and clerks because of the quality of the briefs and and also. Because of the uh, because of the population that these groups represent, um, the ACLU in the past has been really one of these these strong uh, groups from the, the liberal uh, point of view, uh, and uh, has, has somewhat uh, waned over 
uh, more more recent years. Uh, in in uh, the, the studies that I've, I've run for the blog, uh, most recently I found that the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers is really one of the most effective filing groups in having their briefs noticed and cited by the Supreme Court. They often file regularly. Uh, they seem to file very smartly uh, to, to choose diligently which cases they uh, they file in. Uh, and and so aside from um, the United States government, which is probably the most prolific filer of amicus briefs in the Supreme Court, the uh, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers uh, has really been the uh, the most effective uh, modern group that I've studied. And has there been an increase in the frequency of information from amici either showing up in questions um, during oral, oral argument or um, making their way into court the court's opinions? I think it's, it's a really interesting way of, of looking at uh, whether the justices and the clerks uh, um, are doing their homework and when they're doing it. Uh, because we, we see, uh, definitely we see questions during oral argument, um, which are tend to, to, to lag uh, you know, months behind when the, the opinions are released. We, 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 we see many questions that deal with issues that uh, Amiki have uh, brought up in their briefs, and uh, it seems like the justices, as a general, uh, as a general statement, are concerned with the uh, with with the way that uh, Amiki, especially Amiki, that represents uh, large sectors of the population, see the potential policy outcomes of, of the cases. And uh, and we can see the justices, depending probably on on their interest in the cases uh, from early on, whether they're really invested in the uh, in the amicus brief. And, uh, and, and, and we can see this with the specificity of their, their questions uh, that, that relate to the briefs or their, their citations to the briefs and oral arguments. Um, and, uh, and, and so they, they play really a role that, that's bifurcated between uh, oral argument and the, the opinion. Um, and, and we definitely see uh, over time, and, and uh, especially uh, in, in the more modern terms, uh, a, a greater role that, that uh, making play uh, in really guiding the justices' questions and uh, and decisions when they re- relate to uh, the policy to the population in general. So turning to another one of your recent studies, until this week, the Supreme Court had only issued one signed opinion, which is the lowest number at this point in, in the term since the 1860s. Uh, so now, as we've discussed, they, they've issued uh, a few more opinions. But why do you think that was, and what on earth were the justices up to the last several months? Uh, it's a wonderful question, uh, and uh, one that, that's uh, somewhat hard to answer because the <laughs> justices are really so guarded about, uh, about what, they, uh, what they do on a day-to-day basis if they're not um, in court or on, uh, on, on a public appearance schedule. Uh, so we, we, we don't know um, with, with the type of, uh, at least for, for those of us who study the court, uh, it's hard to, to pinpoint what they're doing on, on a day-to-day um, basis outside of, of, of oral arguments uh, or, or conferences that are scheduled. Um, but I, I think the, the, really the big question here is, is, what, is the, what is this a question of? What, what, what are we looking at when we see the, the Supreme Court moving slowly? And I think that uh, this is a trajectory that the court has been on for years. And it's just kind of reached, uh, reached at, at this point, at least, a, a, a uh, kind of a pinnacle of, of, of slowness um, that, uh, you know, could be exceeded in, in future terms. But, uh, but everything seems to be, the momentum seems to be moving in this direction where 
the courts taking fewer cases uh, each term, and this has been going on for, for decades now. Uh, the court has slowed down in releasing opinions, um, and it, it, it's a general question of output, and it just seems like the court's having a tough time uh, uh, of, uh, of, of coming uh, through with, with uh, opinions in a, uh, in a, in a, a time, uh, timely sense. Uh, and it might have to do with, with lack of consensus. I think that, uh, that Chief Justice Roberts is really a, uh, a fan of, of, of bringing the justices together uh, and, and wanting to see consensus. We, we, we saw this last term uh, when uh, before Justice Gorsuch joined the court and there was uh, an even number of justices. Um, the, it seemed like the, the court was really wary about the cases uh, it took and, uh, and, and especially wary against uh, coming to uh, evenly divided votes. And we, we didn't see any, uh, any even split last term. Um, which was which really interesting for uh, for a group of, of eight justices um, to to come to uh, inclusive decisions in, in, in the cases. Um, so I, I think one of the troubling aspects that might have uh, that might have slowed the process down at the beginning of this term had to do with with contention between the justices and in, in, in their decisions. And we even saw this in one of the cases that was released yesterday uh, was a five four decision uh, that that Justice Ginsburg authored. Uh, we tend not to see this 5-4 split this early in, in terms. Usually the, the cases for, uh, and decided early in terms uh, are, are less contentious. Uh, we see more unanimous votes. Um, so perhaps one of the, one of the issues was uh, this lack of, of consensus early on, uh, slowing down the, the process and maybe giving the, the justices a little bit more time to deliberate on, on the, the outcome. You know, I like to think the justices are busy listening to SCOTUS 101 and, yeah. and reading um, your studies on empirical SCOTUS. <laughs> That's a fabulous point. Um, so uh, talking about another study, you wrote about um, how D.C. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh uh, might be a top contender for the next SCOTUS vacancy should it arise. So why do you think he's a likely pick? Kavanaugh struck me as, as, as a likely pick actually before um, – before President Trump released his most recent set of, 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 uh, of potential nominees, um, but he, he wasn't on the earlier earlier set. Uh, Kavanaugh struck me as a, a strong uh, uh, potential nominee because uh, because of, of um, his background and, and what he's done in, in the in the legal world and his jurisprudence. Um, he has strong presence in the Federalist Society, uh, which which Trump. Trump and and, uh, and and Trump's proxies seem very tuned into um, when when choosing uh, judges to appoint to to all the different federal courts. Uh, Kavanaugh is known to be uh, a strong originalist and textualist in, in his jurisprudence, uh, also which are are elements that seem uh, important to, to this administration's choice in, in judges and justices uh, is definitely apparent in in the choice of uh, Justice Gorsuch when. Uh, when he was made nominee um, in a recent study uh, that, that that I saw, uh, Kavanaugh was in the top six of uh, the, the nominated uh, or the, the potential nominees um, in the in his Scalia like uh, writing, um, and uh, the only one of the, the new additions that, that fell into the, the top of this category. Um, I, I think that, that maybe the reason that that President Trump added more names to the list was actually uh, to get to get uh, 
Judge Kavanaugh on, on the list as one of the nominees. So there would be more legitimacy potentially uh, if, if he was chosen, if there's a vacancy. Um, and he, 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 Kavanaugh also has the right pedigree. He, uh, he's a Yale law grad. He uh, was a clerk for uh, Justice Kennedy, like, uh, like Justice Gorsuch was. Um, and he, he feeds a lot of clerks to the Supreme Court. So he has ties to the justices already that we can gauge. Um, and, and he appears to have preferences far to the right. Um, and, and this is going to be important for, uh, for a conservative pick. Um, and, and really to add to this, he's, he's on the D.C. Circuit, which uh, for many years has been the major seating circuit of, of uh, judges to, to justices. So it seems like he has uh, all his ducks in a row. And, uh, and, and so it would make a lot of sense if we saw uh, him as a nominee, and especially if we saw pressure coming uh, from 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 uh, from proxies, those uh, uh, those who are advising him on uh, judicial nominees to really push for Kavanaugh uh, as the next uh, nominee. Well, we shall see what happens. So, turning to yeah. yet another one of your studies, <laughs> you looked at which lower court judges dissented in cases that the Supreme Court decided to review. So your study shows that when the most conservative Ninth Circuit judges dissent, it often leads to a cert grant. Will you tell us a little bit about this study? Yeah, this is based on uh, on a hypothesis of mine uh, that uh, that that has probably been been circulating uh, among scholars for a while. Um, that uh, we know the Ninth Circuit is the biggest circuit in the country, so the most cases that um, that that uh, the courts reviewing on uh, at least at the state level are coming from the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit is also notoriously a liberal circuit, and uh, the Supreme Court uh, is is notoriously uh, has a, a conservative bent to uh, to it. At least the uh, the modern court uh, and, and the one under Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so so it makes sense that that um, the uh, the courts going to take cases. From the Ninth Circuit, uh, but also it, it struck me as, as uh, that that there there are signals that um, that lead the justices and the clerks to take some cases more seriously. There have to be with with thousands of petitions every year, um, some uh, indicia that that give uh, give the justices and clerks um, give them a sense that that one petition might be more likely to. Uh, to, to really be uh, be certain worthy than others, uh, and and one of these strong signals uh, seems to be a dissent from a, a more conservative judge on on a court. So just putting these different facets together, uh, I, I I guessed and and I, I found uh, this supported by the data that when conservative judges on the Ninth Circuit uh, dissent in cases, it's a, a strong signal to the Supreme Court to at least take a a could look at a, at a petition, and uh, and and I think this is just uh, exacerbated by the relationship between some of the, the judges on the Ninth Circuit and uh, the Supreme Court justices. We we saw this with uh, with Judge Kaczynski, who, who recently uh, stepped down, um, had had a, uh, a very substantial relationship with uh, with the justices. Uh, he was one of the the, the top um, judges and feeding clerks to the Supreme Court. Um, he. He, he was known to uh, interact with uh, with the justices, um, and he uh, he had a, a large presence for a judge that uh, that wasn't sitting on the Supreme Court. Um, and and we see this also with with several of the 
uh, other judges on the Ninth Circuit that, that have a high number of their dissents leading to uh, the, leading the court to take cases on um, on on their um, on a docket. Um, so so this is a, a trend that that we see that that I found uh, was was supported uh, by the uh, by the evidence. Can you give us a preview of what you're working on next? Well, I, I like to keep uh, lots of things uh, on on the, the back burner. Uh, so, some of what I, what I'm looking at, um, and, and actually, uh, the, the thing I'm looking at next might be out by the time um, this podcast is broadcasted. Uh, <laughs> but I'm looking at, uh, at at invited amici, looking at the, the practice of, of invitation uh, and uh, who, who's invited, what uh, what cases uh, are are, are um, lead to these invitations. When are they made? Um, and and I, I found some very interesting statistics on this so far. Uh, it seems like a, an area that uh, that hasn't been scrutinized in, in great depth. Um, I'm also looking at uh, at, at some issues uh, um, in greater depth. Uh, I'm really fascinated by the, the search process. Um, so uh, so I'm trying to probe why the, the court chooses specific questions in cases and not others, um, even when. There are uh, some of, of, of the, the, the aspects that usually lead to for grants like circuit splits uh, between big circuits um, and, and other aspects that, that tend to lead to grants. There, there are still many factors that play a role that haven't, uh, that haven't been uh, kind of distinguished. Uh, and and I, I'd like to understand more about this process uh, and, and why the court takes specific cases. So that, that's an area that I'm, I'm generally interested in that I, I foresee one or more uh, future posts uh, taking a look at. The invited amici, that sounds really interesting. I think just sort of as a casual view of, you know, what I what have I, I've observed over the years, it seems like a lot of times um, lawyers who had clerked for one of the justices are often uh, the, the lawyers they reach out to uh, when, you know, the government isn't going to uh, defend a position and they have to invite someone to do that. Um, so I'll be very interested to read, uh, to read your study when it comes out. So uh, one final question that we ask all of our guests, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? This strikes me as an interesting question uh, because I, I think the 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 type of, of answers that I would get would be very different with a modern justice uh, as compared to um, a, a historic justice. The, the justices now just seem so much more guarded and and uh, in the way that they they uh, are willing to interact with with members of the press, members uh, of the population generally. Uh, that that if I had this opportunity, I would be uh, and, and it, to go across all justices, I would be concerned about what a, a modern justice might be willing to divulge versus <laughs> a historic justice. Uh, that, that said, um, I think that the justice I would be most interested in talking to uh, probably was one who didn't sit on the Supreme Court for a, a particularly long time compared to uh, many of its counterparts. Uh, justice uh, Cardozo um, really is, is one of the, the most fascinating justices to me. Uh, I, I love his writing, um, both as a Supreme Court justice and as a judge prior to uh, when he sat on the Supreme Court. Um, and his, his case law, uh, his, his uh, how he expounded and expanded the, the common law. Some of uh, some of the, the most prolific uh, cases in the law school, like Paul's graph, um, uh, were 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 uh, cases that that he authored. Um, he he wrote uh, the nature of the judicial process, which is 
uh, for, for those of us who study uh, judicial behavior, one of the really uh, most seminal books and one of the earliest books that take a look at factors outside of, of just legal doctrine that affect judges' decisions. Uh, and one of the, one of the books that, that I enjoyed uh, reading most uh, in, uh, in, in the last few years uh, was a book by Judge Posner that, that studied uh, Cardozo and his book writing and, and looked at um, how he uh, how he, he wrote his opinions and looked at actually some of, of what I, I, I looked at when um, I, I, I examined um, how uh, Greeks made their way into uh, opinions in, in the language of those opinions. Posner takes a look at uh, how some briefs in, in some of Cardozo's cases uh, really were uh, transformed in, into the writing of the opinions. Uh, and so uh, I really find Cardozo fascinating, and, uh, and he, he's definitely one that I, I would like, uh, if, if, if I had the opportunity to talk to any uh, justice, uh, probably would be him. That's a good pick. I think you're the, the first uh, guest we've had to, to pick Justice Cardozo. So we'll wrap, like up with it. Yes, we'll wrap up with a game, Judge or Just Made Up, where we're going to list a series of names, and our guest, Adam Feldman, will tell us if they are real judges. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> so we have six names, and we'll read them to you, uh, and then you can tell us who's real and who's not. First, Clement Hainsworth. Uh I, I um, know there was a Judge Hainsworth, uh, so I, I'm going to, to, to guess that, that that's the real judge. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, second, Wendell Smallwood. I don't know of, of a Judge Smallwood. Um, that, that isn't to say that he uh, doesn't exist, but I, I would say that that is not a, a real judge. <laughs> not a real judge. That's correct. Uh, Wendell Smallwood is a running back for the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> but it's it's a very judicial sounding name. I think it's very judicial. Uh, and and you're correct that uh, Clement Hainsworth, uh, he was a Fourth Circuit judge and an unsuccessful SCOTUS nominee uh, of President Nixon. Third person, G. Harold Carswell. Well, I I, I know there was a also a, a judge Carswell. Um, so I'm I'm going to guess that that is a judge, although. You're you're correct. Uh, he was a Fifth Circuit judge and another unsuccessful Supreme Court nominee of President Nixon. He had a lot of that. There we go. He had a lot. Um, okay, uh, number four, Ebenezer Hoare, H O A R. Wow. Okay. So I'm I'm going to go against uh, my my intuition here a little bit, and even though I don't know that uh, that that there was a, a, a judge Hoare. Um, I, I I think that that, that name, um, especially Ebenezer, uh, sounds like there, there, there might um, be, a, be a judge with that name. So uh, let, let me uh, take a shot and say that that is uh, or was a judge. You are correct. He was a state court judge in Massachusetts, um, but he was also a former attorney general and an, another unsuccessful SCOTUS nominee. Um, next up, Chamberlain Holler. Also sounds uh, judicial. Um, I, uh, I I feel like I used uh, my my guest so up uh, with the previous uh, the previous judge um, on on somebody who I, I didn't know was a judge uh, and uh, and so I'll I'll go the other direction this time and say uh, say he was not a judge. That is correct. Uh, he did play a judge though. Um, this is the judge oh. from My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> uh, phenomenal movie. Okay, good. Yeah. good, good. And finally, our last one, Willis. Van Devanter. Van, Van Devanter, uh, I, I can say with uh, uh, almost uh, certainty, uh, was 
father, a judge. Yes, he was an associate justice appointed by President Taft. Um, but it, his name is really fun to say. <laughs> yes. Well, well done. You did an excellent yeah. job. I'm, I'm very impressed uh, with your track record here. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.